So in 2010, on May 22nd, 2010, forever enshrined as Bitcoin Pizza Day, this guy on the internet named Laszlo wrote a post in a forum saying, you know what, I want some pizza. I'll give you 10,000 Bitcoin for it. Nayan Arula is the director of the Digital Currency Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. Someone on the internet took up Laszlo on his offer, bought two pizzas, sent them to Laszlo's house, and Laszlo gave this guy 10,000 Bitcoin. That means she knows more than a bit about Bitcoin. That was worth about $41 in 2010. That same amount of Bitcoin is worth more than $60 million today. Telstra Vantage, bringing the magic of technology, insight, inspiration, and innovation. Behind the Mic with Adam Spencer. Now, there's a number of different digital currencies being traded globally. But the most popular, the best known is Bitcoin. As of September 1, 2018, one Bitcoin was worth just under 9,000 Australian dollars. Eight months ago, it was trading at about 27,000. Yep, three times as much. But eight months before that, it was worth only $1,400. This incredible volatility makes it clear there is potential for huge profits, but there's also plenty of risk as well. There's this mob mentality in the space right now. Everyone is racing to get in early, to buy up these tokens, to make a bunch of money, to flip them to the next sucker. It's just like penny stocks. And it's a little bit dangerous. And what's happening right now is that developers and uh, advisors' incentives are really messed up. We're not in a healthy place right now in this industry. And it it sort of begs the question, who's responsible for this anyway? Who's responsible for cryptocurrency technology? Who's making this happen? And unfortunately, the answer is no one. So before you email your investment planner and tell them you want to buy into Bitcoin, maybe you should take a step back and understand what you're buying. Because when you buy a currency, any currency, traditional or digital, the thing you're buying isn't really a thing. What you're buying is a story. Money isn't something that has inherent value, right? Uh, And I think that's really hard for us as humans to believe because we're so used to money being this important, valuable thing. But it turns out money doesn't really have inherent value. Money is an idea. Money is something that we tell ourselves. It's a story that we tell ourselves. Um, And so, you know, there isn't really any inherent value per se to money. Money is something that we need in order to transact, in order to live. You've only got to be in an economy where the the dollar completely collapses. You've only got to see hyperflation happen in in places like post-war Germany or Yugoslavia or Zimbabwe to realise that, yes, if the community decides that bit of paper is worthless, then, sorry, I don't care what you could have bought with it six months ago. It is now worthless. Yeah, in some countries, actually, it uh, costs more to print the money than what the hmm. money is actually worth. And we're seeing this happen in Venezuela today. It's happening again. There was that famous old, it could be anecdotal story, but in in you know war-ravaged Europe of someone who was taking a, a wheelbarrow of currency home from the mint each day and they thought the person was trying to steal currency, they were stealing wheelbarrows. Wow. (laughs) It's a great story. So this this is a tough one for you, but you've got 60 seconds to explain to me what a digital currency is then, because not everyone's across this crypto stuff. Yeah, What what are the key defining aspects of 
cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrency is uh, based on the field of cryptography, which is um, about how to secure information. And uh, Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency. So I think a cryptocurrency has a few important properties. So first of all, it's digital. It exists on the internet. And in fact, there's usually a network behind these cryptocurrencies. There's a network of computers all running software and working together on this ledger of who owns what in the cryptocurrency. Uh, cryptocurrencies don't have a single institution or organization behind them. They're what's known as decentralized, meaning everybody's working on them together. People can come and go. Um, and oftentimes, cryptocurrencies come with software. You can run programs inside of them. They kind of marry money and software together. If the idea of a currency that isn't backed by anything physical scares you, well, remember, we already make 100% digital transactions. When you buy a scented candle on Amazon, well, no one actually stuffs a bunch of paper bills into an envelope and drives them across town to another bank. It's a purely digital transaction. A few ones and zeros on one computer are changed, and a few ones and zeros on another computer change accordingly. Bang! Your payment is complete. The real difference with digital currency is that it's peer-to-peer. It circumvents national governments. The thing with cryptocurrencies is that if nobody controls it, then it's really hard to get to one version of history, one ledger. And, um, you know, different cryptocurrencies solve this problem in different ways. The way that it's solved in Bitcoin is that everybody works together um, solving these random puzzles, essentially, solving these random puzzles. And um, that's what's known as this process of mining, mining Bitcoin. And in order to motivate people to solve these random puzzles, there's a reward. So Bitcoin and and Bitcoin has this really cool incentive system behind it, right? They use new Bitcoin to reward people for securing the ledger. Could the founders decide to change the algorithm and suddenly produce massively more or less, make it harder or easier to produce? I do know there's a limit on the total number of Bitcoin that can be produced. Right. So there is no... There is no one who controls Bitcoin. This is a really hard idea to kind of get across. Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym, uh, created it. But that person, whoever it was, has disappeared. It's no longer involved in Bitcoin. There are a set of developers who work on the code. um, But really, Bitcoin is determined by the software that people choose to run. And right now, the software that most people are running says there's a limit to the number of Bitcoin. There's only 21 million. Says that this is the random puzzle you have to solve to get Bitcoin. Um, And yeah, people could change their minds. They could decide to run a different version of the software. But you have to get everybody to agree to that. In fact, there's even been examples, hasn't there, with some cryptocurrencies where there's been some compromise, some security breach, and the community as such that indulge in that currency have decided, okay, there's been a problem here. We're going to fork the currency now and say... We don't accept these ones anymore. We're only backing these ones as genuine. So even that way, I guess the the people who submit to the story of a currency, even in the digital world, can make decisions about that. Yeah, you can change the story. That's what's so amazing about it. And this happened with a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. There was um, a program running on the Ethereum blockchain uh, that had a bug in it. And it was a really bad bug. And a hacker started stealing millions and millions of dollars um, uh, worth of Ethereum out of this uh, out of this program. And ultimately, you know, the people behind Ethereum got together and they said, you know what, this is not good. We don't, we don't want to do this. So we're going to change the code. We're going to fork 
Ethereum. And uh, we're going to create a version of it in which the hacker doesn't have this money. There's an interesting analogy with Australian currency that I wouldn't expect you to know, but the Australians are the pioneers of the polymer banknotes. And one of the reasons, I'm pretty sure it was the CSIRO, our national science body, started looking into that. Just after Australia switched from the British currency to our own, there was a massive forgery on $10 notes, our distinct old blue note. So many of them in Victoria at the time were forgeries. The community basically came together and said, I don't trust $10 notes anymore. They, they almost, they, they effectively sort of... They eliminated them. That, that, that <laughs> out, of, out of the currency, it will only trade in fives and twenties. The tens just can't be trusted anymore. Yeah. That was the initiation of the process that led to now Australian technology doing the world's best sort of hardest to forge banknotes. That's fascinating. And, and, and it's so cool that that was the story that the community decided on, right? One day, $10 notes were worth something. The next day, they weren't. It was in December 2017 that Bitcoin surged in value. It rocketed up to around $27,000 per Bitcoin. Now, that wasn't because of a lack of production or some deeper economic factors. It was because of speculation. People started buying in and the price reacted like a stock would. Some saw it as a sign of consumer confidence, but others bemoaned the fact that an unstable currency is not very useful for day-to-day transactions. Every time Bitcoin skyrockets, my colleague jokes, more people show up to our classes, more people show up to our clubs, um, our talks, things like that. It gets everybody excited, you know? I mean, we're human. Um, When the price goes up, we hear about people getting wealthy. We want to know what's going on. At the same time, it draws some negative attention to the space as well. It gets the people in who just want to speculate, who aren't necessarily interested in the technology. So actually, I think... um, it's, it's probably going to be better if the price crashes a bit. So get all the people out who are just there for the money and um, focus on the technology. The story around Bitcoin has changed over time. Initially, Bitcoin was supposed to be about digital payments, like faster, easier digital payments. Now it's turned into something pretty different, more of an asset, a store of value, something that you buy to hedge against other currencies, you know, regular currencies. If I'm a small or medium business, what are the benefits for small or medium-sized businesses to start offering payment methods in cryptocurrency? And how is it currently impacting the way we do business? So why should a business do it? And is it widespread enough to have any real effect at the moment? Yeah, I don't think it is widespread enough to have a huge effect, actually. So in my town of Cambridge, some businesses that used to take Bitcoin actually stopped taking Bitcoin because the fees got to be really high, Um, you know, and, and, and that's a problem. But There's actually some really cool technology coming down the pipeline that's going to make Bitcoin payments a lot easier and a lot cheaper. So to answer your question, you know, why should a small business think about this? Well, I think it's helpful to get familiar with the technology, you know, learn about it, learn how it works, figure out what the pain points are, because this is coming, you know, and it's it's helpful to learn about it early. But as someone who's in the field, does it have a sort of swashbuckling feel to be in a digital currency at the moment? Is it slightly rebellious or is it a, is oh, it a- yeah, yeah, definitely. There is, uh, and you know, it's gotten less rebellious over time. I think five years ago, it was a lot more rebellious because, um, there was this thought that digital currency or cryptocurrency was all about dark markets and, um, drugs, buying drugs on the internet and things like that. And now you see fortune 500 businesses with blockchain groups that are, you know, playing around with this stuff. IBM is one of the biggest proponents of, um, of blockchain technologies. 
Nehar is part of the digital currency movement. She, and a lot of people like her, view it as more than just an investment strategy. It's a philosophy. For some people, it's almost a religion. We used to just build technology and we didn't really think about what are the values that I'm embedding in this technology. We thought of technology as something that didn't have values, but really it does. Um, AI algorithms can have can encode bias. Uh, the internet, um, the web as we see it today, uh, can actually sort of change the way that elections work, change the way that people communicate with each other. And so I think, you know, we've learned this lesson. We've learned this lesson that we have to be really thoughtful about what values we're embedding in technology. And so, yeah, I think we can we can choose to build cryptocurrencies in a way that uh, it's easier to access, that it's designed for the most number of people instead of for the elite few. There is so much greed and speculation going on with cryptocurrencies right now. I'm working on this technology to democratize access to finance. Unfortunately, a lot of people are building crypto hedge funds and are just trying to make a quick buck. I think we really have to curb this get-rich-quick mentality because that's not what this is about long-term. It's about building technology over financial speculation. So if Bitcoin crashed tomorrow... Would would I notice? I think you'd probably see a lot of headlines about Bitcoin crashing tomorrow. I mean, it's already crashed from where it was in January. Um, it's it's more than halved. Um, you, but would you notice? Probably you, if you don't own any Bitcoin, you just kind of go along with your daily life, and you'd be totally fine. I think the downsides of it crashing tomorrow is that we'd probably enter a little bit of of a crypto winter, you know, less excitement about it, fewer people deciding to work on it. And that would be a shame. Nahat, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much for explaining this incredible, complicated world to us on Telstra Vantages behind the mic. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Now, you won't be alone if you're still sitting on the fence about the viability of digital currencies that aren't affiliated with the government. But if Nahar is right... In just a few years, you won't have a choice. Digital currency has the potential to be so omnipotent, it will affect you, even if you don't directly participate. The internet caused an explosion of innovation because of its open architecture. And just like the internet changed the way we communicate, I think that this technology can change the way we pay, allocate, and determine value. We're sitting here in the equivalent of 1977, and we're building what's coming next. It's up to us. We're doing it right now. And I think that's the future of money. So thanks to Neha Narula and all the guests on this series. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, get to meet, with me, many amazing people who have their own unique story to tell. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Vantage Behind the Mic.